East Reformed Baptist Church, and we're thankful for our missionaries from Montana to be with us today. Particularly, Andy came back, he's fixed the toilet downstairs, so we, we got that taken care of. We really appreciate you, Andy. Uh, we were going to have him come back and pray with the elders um, today, but uh, we figured him fixing the toilet would be better use of his services today. So we really appreciate that. Uh, you know, things do kind of um, break down from time to time. We were talking about that with Gordon's uh, class this morning in our ministry training class. In fact, uh, just as a precursor to tell you, I'm going to flip up our songs here. Hopefully, don't mess you up too much. We're going to do 456 first, our a firm foundation, and we'll talk about that. We do need a firm foundation. We talked about that in uh, his lessons on the Apostles' Creed, and particularly we talked about the aseity of God. If you're not sure what it is, ask Gordon. He'll tell you. Anyway, God exists in and of himself, and uh, that is the firm foundation on which we stand and, you know, the toilet can um, overflow as it might and fall apart. We had our air system go out in the fellowship hall. But, uh, you know, we're teeter-tottering at times, but uh, always uh, a firm foundation under us, and that is God. And for God's people, that's a great thing, regardless of whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. Which, by the way, just reminds me some uh, folks that are really uh, uh, baptismal candidates uh, as members as well. Uh, the Kenimers are out traveling. Uh, let me just mention, pray for them. I just thought of them. They, they had uh, some breakdown in their uh, RV equipment, and they're working on that. So if you're thinking, I'll add it to the prayer list. But uh, uh, again, I imagine that uh, it's, it can be um, difficult. They're out uh, doing some work uh, traveling in doing so and uh, you know there's always things that fall apart and break down um, I, I remember reading a story about the first person that crossed the United States in an automobile before they had you know gasoline strategically placed and and so forth it was quite an adventure to get from one side to the other they expected to drive about 10 to 20 miles and then break down and then fix it <laughs> you know we, we get in a car we don't expect to ever break down right we just go and go and go and so, in any case, we certainly are blessed. Well, I'm supposed to give the announcements, so let me try to do some of that, um, most of which, really, you can find in your um, uh, bulletin. You can get it all there, and we'll just mention that we are having fellowship lunch next week featuring summertime foods. Now, I'm not sure what that is, but Jerry's a great cook, and so I'm looking forward to whatever you make, Jerry. Um, so... Everyone else, bring what you got, and, uh, and, uh, and we'll enjoy that. That's sandwiches. All right. I'm, uh, hot dogs and sandwiches. I'm fine with that. We're going to put a couple of notes on the board downstairs. One is Anchored in Truth, thanking us for our support for the missionaries, and the other is from the Chalice family, again, and this time thinking about their loss of John and uh, Nick as well of recent days and they just wanted to write us another note just to thank the church for our prayers uh, for them at this time so uh, they wanted to mention that the rest of the announcements i think you can find there and again i appreciate you guys responding to ministry and working with the children uh, and many of you have done that again coordinate uh, with um, 
uh, Linda uh, on that, and she's doing a good job in organizing it. And we even need some backup people because you never know when the toilet's going to overflow, right? So in any case, uh, let's go ahead and I've uh, changed up the order. Let's go ahead and stand then and sing this 456. Blake will come and lead us. And I want you to think as you sing through this, how, what, a, what a solid foundation that you have in Christ our Lord. Forty-six. Turn to number 46 and then we'll sing, This is my Father's world. The earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Psalm 24, 1, number 46.
commitment. Um, the, if you'll look inside your worship folder, uh, on the left side there, I have some wording there I'd like to go over with you, but um, let me just mention something, and then I'll have the ladies um, uh, hand out some mementos for today, but I'll let you sit for this first part, because who knows, that could be long. You see the bold, all caps there? I'm going to look at that in just a minute. Father's Day in our culture recognizes those that have the response, immediate responsibility of fatherhood. And I hope you enjoy the various celebrations that you might have, uh, even in this day, or even fond memories of thinking of your past. Obviously, a father, a good and godly father, points to our father, who is in heaven. His name is to be holy. In the church, though, we want to recognize that spiritual fatherhood and cultivate that. It does come out of manliness, masculinity, that which has been really distorted in a great degree in our culture in these days. I like the wording here from the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You can search that on the internet and find a 500-page tome that goes through that in greater detail. But, but the, the heart of it, as far as masculinity, it's defined very well in all caps here on your worship folder. The heart of mature, ma mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationship. That's a very profound statement, and yes, it's biblically based, and we could exegete that uh, for um, a month of Sundays. But the essential part of this is to understand what really masculinity ultimately is. It is a responsibility to lead in all things. It's a responsibility to provide for and it is a responsibility to protect. The, the various ways, relationships, and particularly women are in focus, is obviously you may have a different relationship. Your spouse, you, you, you're to lead, provide, and protect. In your relationship with your mother, perhaps, it's a different type of relationship, but these things still work out. To women in general, uh, we're indeed to do that. Lead in a spiritual way within the church, obviously. This is key and important and something that is very much lost. And I would encourage you that may have influence over young men who are growing up, who are uh, learning what it means to be a man, to indeed model these very things and encourage them to work hard and diligently at making the, this a focus of their life, that they would learn to lead, to protect, and provide. If you, I want to give you, a, a pr say, a prayer and a commitment to uh, the, the, the men who, will, who are spiritual fathers within the church and for those that will become. And so we'll start at age 16. If you're a, if you're a male, 
16 years of age and older. If you'll please stand, I want to pray for you for this very thing. And I'm having the young ladies to pass out a uh, memento for today, a little bookmark, if you'll take that from me just as a memento of this commitment this day. And I'll read for you this scripture verse. Here, the Apostle Paul is talking to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Might I challenge you, men, that this is passing down the legacy of truth to the next generation. They're going to need it. Timothy had big shoes to fill. He stood on Paul's shoulders. And the young men that are growing up within this church, you're going to have some big shoes to fill. And trust these then and call them to be men of faith who will be able to continue that on. And here's an example of it. And young men might like these examples in their life. It's a great illustration. This would be a great sermon for you to preach as you pass on this legacy of faith. The illustration is that of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. He says, sharing the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of crops. Soldier, athlete, a farmer, a man, a godly man. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let me pray for the men in this church in particular. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these men those that have walked in wisdom for some time by your grace, we're thankful that indeed you have strengthened us by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, that we have heard your word and heeded it and by the Holy Spirit are conforming unto the image of Christ. We pray all the way down to the perspective of the young men who are here and some that will one day be aware that indeed they are a young man. I pray, Father, for the, even them, that they would have great faith, great courage, great conviction. They would be hardworking men, men of great integrity, men of uh, great courage and conviction, that indeed they would rise up to lead lead this, their own families, lead those that are around them in their presence, lead within this church, lead people to godliness and provide great protection against those, from those who, on the outside, who would destroy that, and particularly in upholding the, the virtue and the morality and the sanctification of women and the way we have a great relationship with them. I pray that we would not be boys, but men, and 
provide great uh, dignity to the women that, uh, that you have given to us in this world to both lead, provide for, and protect. I pray, Father, that uh, this church would continue with men, godly men, who would set an example of sacrifice, of service, of great commitment. I pray that you would give them great blessing as they hear, well done, a faithful soldier, athlete, and farmer. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand again and take our hymn books and turn to number 123 and sing Children of the Heavenly Father. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children never forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. 123.
I hope I find you well this morning. I hope it is well with your soul. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 59. Psalm 59 begins on page 477 of the Pew Bible, page 477. When I first read Psalm 59, uh, beginning yesterday in preparation for reading it to you this morning, David's language seemed familiar. And it, not just because we've had a string of psalms written by David as he approaches God the Father Almighty asking for help because of the dire circumstances that he finds himself in. But they seem familiar because I too have need of God's omnipotent help and am driven often to approach the throne of grace. And just like for David, the asking leads to the assurance, the confidence that God hears and answers the prayers of his children. As for, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I was shouting at Andy this morning and I've lost my... <clears throat> As the same for Psalms 57 and 58, Psalm 59's instructions to the choir director uh, most likely indicate a tune, a familiar melody uh, to which this particular psalm and those two psalms were sung in worship by the congregation. The historical notation that you see in your Bible there, uh, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him, that is to kill David, is a reference to the events that are recorded in 1 Samuel 19 and verses 8 through 14. In that passage, we find that King Saul has sent bloodthirsty, blasphemous men who are as howling, snarling dogs to lay siege to David's house for the sole purpose of, 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 of murdering him, of, of assassinating him. But in that passage, we find that Saul's own daughter, David's wife, Michael, helps David escape. Well, that's the general setting. But later in this psalm, this song, even when David is the king, he again finds he must call upon God for protection from evil men who seek to destroy him because he is God's man. And like in Psalms 57 and 58, 59 concludes with a song of joy for God's gracious, just deliverance from enemies. Psalm 59, I believe, is just as pertinent for us today as it was for King David then. Did you read the news today? Have you looked at what's happening all around us? Psalm 59, beginning at verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression of, or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come and meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. 
But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will look, let me look in triumph upon my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in thy wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you this morning for the deliverance of David in the times of darkness and danger in his life. And I am humbled and, and yet joyous that each one of your children, just like David, can come boldly to the throne of grace, into your presence of our great high priest, Jesus, the only Son of God, because he suffered more than we could ever suffer, than ever we could imagine. But because of that, he sympathizes with our weakness, and we praise you for that. We praise you for him, Jesus Christ, very God of very God, who died for our sins and rose again from the dead on the third day. I praise you that my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is able to help me and each one who calls upon his name because he's triumphed over all, including death itself. Like David, we know we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, according to your sovereign design. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your loving kindness that's higher than the heavens are above the earth, that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, and that your compassion ever covers us. Uh, continue to bless our fellowship this morning. Bless the offering that is given this day to your purposes and uses. And May God the Holy Spirit teach us your will and move our hearts and our hands to action as Brother Wayne breaks forth the word of life. Show us your glory, Lord. Amen.
invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Today is Father's Day. As we already recognize, I typically don't do a topical message of the day. It's okay to do it. We normally go through a text of scripture, and here we are in John chapter 17, and so we'll continue with that. But I think you're going to find the message today very applicable to fathers, and really a great charge, even as I was wrestling through it this week. Look at verse 17 of chapter 17. This brings up this concept of sanctification, something that is significantly important for the church and particularly to fathers, spiritual fathers who would lead their homes, would lead the church and really lead the culture into this idea of sanctification. This sentence here in verse 17 is worth memorizing. It is worth meditating on. It is worth hiding in your heart. Let that rattle around in your mind for a little while. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In fact, I would like for you to Recite this with me in that phraseology. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's say this out loud together as a church body. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I encourage you to consider thinking on that this week. And we'll unpack it a little bit here today. I don't intend to give a full orb presentation on this doctrine of sanctification. I'll just barely scratch the surface. I'll use some of the guidelines that are found in the text to to talk about it. But let me mention here in context, this is Jesus's fifth request, if you will, on the behalf of his disciples functioning as the high priest. He's praying for the sanctification of his disciples. Now the word sanctify here. Hagiadzo in the Greek, it's a word from which we derive holy. To sanctify means to to make holy. Holiness conveys the idea of perfection. And not only in a moral sense, that's true, but really in all things. That's why we say that holiness is the chief attribute or characteristic of God, if you will. All of his attributes are said to be holy, whether it's his wrath, his love, his mercy, all of that is perfect in every way. And in that way, it's also, as some have described, a cut above the rest. That is, it is set apart. It is that idea of being set apart is also included in this idea then of to sanctify, means to make perfect, to set apart. Something that is holy is therefore set apart from something that is unholy. 
Paul explained to the church at Ephesus what the sanctified life looks like for the Christian. And Gordon mentioned earlier, I had preached through Ephesians again. Well, Gordon, I bring it up all the time anyway, but I concur. It's a great book. And if you remember, is what we talked about in the class this morning. In the first four verses, it talks about those that are in Christ. One of the descriptions as the book of Ephesians begins, it says they are holy, right? They are set apart for God. What does that set apart life look like? Well, the doctrinal setting is in the first few chapters. By the time you get to chapter 5, it gives you the practical implication, and I'll, <coughs> I'll just quote it for you. To be sanctified means to have a lifestyle that is characterized by love. He says, walk in love. A lifestyle that is characterized by morality. Walk in morality, verse 3 of chapter 5. To walk or to live, if you will, as children of light as opposed to children of darkness, right? Verse 8 of chapter 5. Verse 15, to walk as a wise person, not as a fool. This is what a sanctified life looks like. In verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. That doesn't mean to be somehow crazy. It means to be controlled, controlled by the very Spirit of God, which results in a disposition of praise and thanksgiving and singing and making melody in your heart. To 521, to walk in submission in ways that are appropriate to the various relationships. And then that is expounded on till you get to 527 and specifically calls men to model this and to take up this idea of sanctification, if you will, when he charges husbands, verse 25 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, to love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might, and here's the word, sanctify her, set her apart having cleansed her by the washing of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The idea is a love that is purifying, a love that leads others to Christ, to be conformed to Christ. Man, what does it mean to be the head of your household? It means to lead like Christ. Loving, sacrificial, and yes, sanctifying. That is, lead towards the path of righteousness. Now you lead to the path of righteousness, you go down it yourself. They're going to follow. Follow Christ. And make it easier for others to follow Christ. Male leadership in the idea of sanctification in the home, the immediate setting, in, in the church, and then ultimately in the culture in which we live is absolutely critical. It is key. And by the way, the illustration given to me a lot is a key thing in leadership 
It's like trying to move a chain, if you will. It's a lot easier to pull it than to push it. You get the imagery, right? Lead, trailblaze, guide, live like Christ, call others to Christ. Those who are in Christ are disciples indeed of him, and all of us are called to sanctification. This sanctification, this setting apart, living in this way, it is not only a suppressor of evil in your own life, it is a critical suppressor of evil in the light of, in, in the uh, entire world. Jesus would call his disciples salt. To be salt, to be a preserving effect in the world in which we live. The Christian influence in our culture, especially in the large metropolitan areas, as we're able to, to witness in the current media, is waning, to say it mildly. There's a direct correlation between fatherless homes and violence in these various communities. You don't need more money, more government programs, more social reforms. They've all tried and they have all failed. We should know that by now. What you need is Christ and in particular men to pick up their cross and follow him. Others will follow along. Lead in godliness one home at a time and one life at a time. It is a great call and I want to challenge men to indeed be godly men. Lead for Christ. Lead towards sanctification. Jesus prayed indeed that these men, and they were men, they had unique roles within the church to be sanctified. Not just so that they individually would be conformed to Christ, but because of those that they would influence. These would be the faithful men, the men of faith, the men that would be committed to it. And by their leadership would lead many, many to righteousness. And through their commitment, God used them as a means to bring about the gospel to the nations, which has endured even to this day. And because of that continuing influence, here we are as a church gathered around his holy word. Jesus prays for their sanctification. My application certainly ours as well. Let's go ahead and read it, root it in its immediate context and note that this is the fifth element of his high priestly prayer. Let's read beginning in verse 9 of chapter 17. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All of mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, we're thankful for sending the Son indeed to come to sanctify us in the truth of your word. I pray for your people, and particularly men, and even in this day, and those that would follow their leadership, Father, I pray that we would individually walk the path of righteousness and lead many sons and daughters to this glorious truth, strengthened by your Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On the back of your worship folder, I've given you a few blocks to provide some organization to this text, and I'll see what I can get through with the time that remains. But essentially, I'm looking at the power of sanctification. We'll discuss that the practice of it, the, how it works out, and then the parameters or the guidelines for it as we close out. Let's first look at the power of sanctification in and of itself. We've talked about what it is in general. Now let's look at the power of it where Jesus says in verse 14, I have given them your word. In the second phrase, he says about his disciples, they are not of the world. And then he gives, in the third phrase, the reason why. Because I am not of the world. See the connection? I, I'm not of the world, so therefore those that are in me would naturally not be of the world. By world, he doesn't mean people, humanity. He's talking about a system, the world system. Um, the culture at large. And it isn't just this culture at that time, it's any culture, any world system, if you will, as opposed to Christ. It's the culture. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at a couple places there. John helps us in his epistles to flesh out this idea of the world used in this way. There's a term going about today that's in the news quite a bit, at least discussed a lot, of how awful our particular culture is because it's systemically racist, according to those that proponents of that. I think it's systemically sinful, and that's the thing that they miss. All of it is. And it isn't just our culture, it's every culture. There is a systemic problem. It's called sin. 
It is what the world system ultimately is. It doesn't mean every aspect of it is bad, but through and through, it is corrupted by sin. John would say here in chapter 2 in 1 John, his epistle, verse 15, look down to there, 2.15, because of the state of the culture, the sinful system, if you will, he calls on his disciples then, he says, don't love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, this is where I'm getting the systemic idea. That's what it means, systemic, all of it. All that is in the world. And he gives an example. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's making a clear distinction as Jesus did, who said, they are not of the what? World. Just as I am not of the world. And here's John teaching this, that Christ taught him, then don't fall in love with the world system or the things that are in and part of the world. Ultimately, it's gone away. I mean, if you put your hopes and dreams into whatever it is that is in the world, either material or immaterial, it's going to fail and pass away at some time. He looks specifically the idea of the flesh, the idea of the eyes, or the lust, some translate it that way, or pride. He's making a distinction here between the disciples and the rest of humanity that has a, we might call it, a secular worldview. You can even add sinful worldview. All humanity is part of that as a as world system by default. They don't possess the unique love of the Father. Their desires come from their own heart, which is corrupt, called the flesh here. It's most easily discerned and demonstrated by what they lust for and what they desire. And the very pride at the heart of it to think, oh, I know what's best. I won't hear from correction from any outside source. By contrast, as I mentioned, those that are in Christ, his disciples, and he's looking at those 11 that remain, they are, as he said, they're not of this world. They're not of the world system as Jesus is not. The idea, and I've heard it bandied about, oh, well, that person's just a worldly Christian. Can I tell you that? That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian in that way. John speaks very black and white. Yeah, there may be times in which a Christian might engage in sinful behavior, but it isn't characteristic of their life and lifestyle. You know what's characteristic of it? They repent. 
they return. Yeah, they might fall, but they will get up by God's grace and return to him. They're not going to be characterized by a, and we might use the term, world or worldly in this sense, a sinful lifestyle. Don't take my word for it. Let's just see what the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has told us. Flip over one more chapter to chapter 3 in 1 John. In chapter 3, the text reads in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, I like the way it's phrased here, the term practice, because you get the idea, right? It isn't a single event, right? It's a practice. It's talking about that's my lifestyle, you know? If you had a physician's office, you might say, well, that's my practice. What do you mean? That's what, that's what is the ongoing thing. That's what you do. Everyone whose lifestyle, then, if you might think of it translated that way, is, is that of sin. You're engaging in sin, and that is lawlessness. But on the contrary, Christ, verse 5, appears. He, he appeared for what purpose? to take away sin. And there's no sin in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's what he means by that. There's a change of heart in a Christian, a new direction, so that he won't keep on sinning. Oh, he might sin, but he's not going to continue in unrepentant sin. No one who keeps on sinning, that is, he lives in this unrepentant state, has either seen him or known him. That's a strong statement right there. You don't know God. You haven't actually seen him. You don't even know him. You may claim that you do, but it is evidence in how you actually live. Then he, I love the phraseology, little children, because here's an elderly pastor talking to his congregation. He's about to pass off the scene, and, but he still, beloved, he still loves them, and they're beloved to him. And as a father, a spiritual father, talking to his children, little children, it's an endearing term. Yeah, he's going to give them harsh statements, of course, because he wants to protect them. He wants to provide for them. He wants to lead them. This is what a father does. And you can hear his heart cry out in verse 7, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, he is of the what? The devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was destroy the works of the devil. They will be ultimately destroyed in the final day. But in this day, in the world, Christ is going about granting his disciples the power to destroy the deeds of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life through his holy word. No one born of God 
Verse 9 makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you're alive, you breathe. If you're a Christian and you sin, you will repent and return. There are many people who rededicate their life, and I'm not going to press them on this. I've had them come to me. They want to rededicate their life. But actually, if they examine their heart, they're really repenting for the first time. <laughs> Before, it was just various things that brought about them making some sort of statement of faith, but it really wasn't genuine. And then they come forward because they have this new life now that wants to breathe out repentance and faith. The power, I hope you understand, then of living in this practice of righteousness isn't based on your own ability to do so. In fact, you have none. It is through the regenerative work of God. It is because you have been born of God. That's why. That's why there's a change in the disposition from of the world and then not of the world. Paul would tell his protege Titus this way in Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is, entails the idea of the sanctifying, can you see it? The separating work of the Holy Spirit. The wa and he describes it this way, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to his promise. Salvation brings about a divine cleansing of sin, a gift, a gift of a new spirit-generated, spirit-empowered, spirit-protected life as God's own children and heirs. This is the new birth, a renewing by the Holy Spirit. He is the agent that is working out this regeneration, this washing. This sanctifying power, back to our text in verse 14 of chapter 17, comes about through the revelation of Christ. Notice verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. That phrase, given the word, what, is, what does he mean? He just said some things about God? Well, that's true. He did teach him. And is Jesus the final revelation of the word? Yes, that's true. But I think here, the, the, the connection that he's making is, look back in verse 6 of the same chapter. He says, I've manifested your name to the people. And note this phraseology, you gave me what? Out of the world. Right? They were in it. Now they're out. How'd they get out? Jesus manifested the name of God to those people. 
They're no longer in the world. They're separated from the world, that is, sanctified. And they're manifest, God's word, parallels to the idea of giving their word. This has been a theme from the very beginning, and if you want to keep your finger and look at it, I'll just read it for you because I've said it many times. In the very first chapter of John, John sets this up talking about the Word who was in the very beginning. And in verse 18, it says, No one's ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, who is that? Christ, Jesus. He has made him known. He has explained him. He has manifested the Father. That's where this is getting from. The way sanctification works is that it is a divine disclosure of who God is. Aspects of his nature, his attributes, and what we know about him comes through the revelatory work of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ manifesting and giving his word then that, that indeed his disciples are sanctified. The sanctification then is integral to what we would think of as salvation or regeneration, if you will. It's not separate. One who is saved is sanctified. Now, it will be fully realized in the eternal state in which you will get what we would call a glorified body. Or you can think of it as a sanctified body. It'll be complete. But on this side of eternity, that is, in the world that he's not going to take his disciples out of, it's going to be this trajectory will be increasingly manifested by those who are in Christ, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, this process in time, that is, in the world, is done in a synergistic process through the regenerate believer who, through the power of the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the flesh and continually conforms to the image of Christ. It will be perfectly realized. It's guaranteed in the eternal state. This side, you will see manifestations of it. And it is through the disclosure that Christ provides. He gives his word. And this can be difficult to explain, but all of a sudden, there is a change in your relationship in your attitude and your thoughts and your affections about Jesus Christ and about God that is deep and it cannot be taken away. It is because of Christ has made known God in your heart and brought about sanctification. Well, maybe you'd like to see a little bit more of it. And that's Jesus' prayer as well in verse 15 of chapter 17. Regenerating the believers, sanctifying them, setting them along this trajectory in this life, that will necessarily create a problem. 
because you have those who were in the world, but now they're not of the world. Look at verse 15. I don't ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. That's the devil. That's the world system. That's the father of it all. That's the prayer that you would need to be protected. And then notice here, he repeats this phrase that he said in verse 14. They are not, in verse 16, he says the same, essentially the same thing. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This rephrasing is, is a repetition again once to, to tell about the distinction between those that are in Christ and those that are not. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are separated. You are sanctified from the world. That's the condition that it actually exists. And Jesus says, look in verse 14, he says this separation then that occurs through the regenerate heart of the believer, the change of heart, no longer of the world, then that creates a state in which the Christian will be hated by the world. And again, world is not people per se, but the world system and those that are aligned with it, those who have the ideology of the world. You're like a fish out of water. There's something different. The world system hates God. The world system is in rebellion against God. The world system is under the prince of the power of the air, if you will, the devil. The world system hated Jesus Christ. They put him to death on the cross. An innocent man who was truly innocent, who did no evil, the only one in absolute perfection and no guilt was crucified. Can I give you a thought here? The world system hasn't changed. Oh, we might use different rhetoric. We might use Jesus' words and Christian languages and, and niceties and so forth. Maybe change ideas to mythological terms so you can still speak in a flattering world but way, but can I tell you this? The world system hates Jesus Christ just as much as today as they did then. And if they had a chance, they'd put him to death right now. Paul will explain that. That's why they were persecuting him because they couldn't put their hands on Jesus. So one that was separate from the world creates certain amount of antagonism and therefore they hate. And they want to put him to death. And they did. They eventually cut his head off. If you live for Christ, you can expect to suffer varying degrees of persecution. If you love Christ, you're going to obey him, as the text has said in a number of occasions. 
The world system creates a caricature of Jesus. Their Jesus does this or that. They've crafted an idol of their own imagination that resembles Jesus no more than a Renaissance painting. I was um, reading some arguments concerning gender and sexuality, these kinds of things, from those that would claim to be Christians. Now, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be, what, not of the world. <laughs> There's going to be something different in your ideology. I'm not saying every idea, philosophy, and information of the system is, is necessarily false, but the trajectory is corrupt and false. And how can you know it is? You can compare it to something. We'll get to that in a minute. That's the parameters. That is the very truth of God. They'll say that, oh, those that have a caricature of Jesus, they'll say, well, we're more enlightened than they were in those olden days. They didn't know any better. They would have written the word a little different, if you will. They might suggest, well, Jesus really didn't address these ideas of LGBTQT and whatever else they want to add to the acronym there. The reality is they're in darkness. They're perversely dancing to a golden calf of their own making. If you want to turn there, just for the sake of time, Matthew chapter 19. In the context of divorce, Jesus quotes scripture. And in verse 4 of chapter 19, I'll just show you this as an example. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Separation occurs because of sin. So we acknowledge that. What do you do about it? Well, you would repent and return. But, he's, but in this point that he's making, I hope you can see, here in Jesus' refutation to their ideas, he affirms creation. He created them when? Oh, from the very beginning, right? I mean, that's what Genesis says, right? He affirms that there is a male and female. He affirms that the two, Adam and Eve, that they would be married, have children. That's the imagery of the euphemism, become one flesh. That there is this human author, Moses, that writes God's inspired word and he affirms the authority of scripture no wonder the modernist liberal movement moves so hard then to discount the authority of God's word and today the postmodernist leftists now get into this insane idea 
of getting rid of any biological distinctions between male and female. And in doing so, they set themselves on the pathway to societal destruction. It is a corrupting influence. It'll destroy you. Rejecting God's truth will actually bring about death, and that's what this world system is ultimately about. That's the trajectory. I was reading an article the other day. It said, our, if, if I understood it correctly, it said our population replacement rate here in America is at 1.7. That's below replacement, isn't it? This perverse ideology will continue to lead to the demise of our own destruction. For those that are in church, I'll just add, don't listen to the world. <laughs> listen to God's word. It's countercultural. There's a tension then that's created. Because if you live in accordance to God's word, that's a different trajectory, and it creates a tension. Back in our text here in verse 15, Jesus recognizes that, and he says, I don't ask you to take them out. There will be a tension, because you have a totally different idea and ideology about life. you'll have the tension caused by the evil one. And he prays that God would protect them from the evil one. You're going to need a lot of wisdom in this world to walk, to live. There's two ways to deal with this tension of the world system, which is contrary to God's worldview. You could withdraw, or you can engage. And there may be a good reason to do both in various degrees. It's hard to maintain a proper and healthy balance. You'll need certain wisdom from God to indeed do that. There are some that say, well, the system is so awful and corrupt, let's just get away and make our own enclave. Let's just totally withdraw from the world. The early days of the church, I think somewhere around the third century, there was a group of folks that decided to do it. We call them the Desert Fathers. A little strange in some of their ideas, but their motivation was they recognized the systemic sinfulness of the world, and to be relieved from that, they, they, they isolated themselves, and soon monastic orders developed on the same thing. Obviously, the problem is we're not meant to be isolated. Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out. If he wanted to take you totally out of the world, he would have done that. So there's no need to cloister up and be totally isolated, if you will, from the world so that your withdrawal is total and you're not engaging. On the other hand, there's a great um, challenge here in keeping this tension in the right perspective is that you don't, okay, well, we're going to lead the whole world to Christ, so we'll just totally engage. And so we'll just act like them and speak like them, and whatever musical forms that they have, we'll just grab all of that. All, it's all good. The wholesale adoption of the world's values. 
Well, then how could you be not of the world? <laughs> That's the problem, right? You have to be in it, but you don't need to be of it. There's a distinction there. And I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. I have no, no um, desire to do that. I just ask you to find your parameters for that in God's holy word. And that's our next point here. In verse 17 that I had you read out earlier, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So, well, how can I live as a wise person? making the best use of my time because I recognize the days are evil. The world itself is systemic. To what degree do I need to withdraw? To what degree do I need to engage? The guideline is God's holy word. Sanctify the, in the truth, your word is truth. The statement here, notice it says, in the truth. God's word has been a constant theme here in Jesus' farewell discourse. It's understandable that the apostles continued this theme as they, they taught the very words of Christ. On a practical way, individually, Christ demonstrated the parameter and the power of God's word when the, the evil one, the devil himself, tempted Jesus in his in the very physically weakened state but Jesus <laughs> but Jesus had a reply to him on each occasion do you remember it is written it is written and it is written do you want to make a decision need the wisdom ask of God it's not going to speak to you in some sort of audible voice or move your hand about like a Ouija board. It is written in his word. Pick it up and read. Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to, to live in the world but not of the world? Hide his word in your heart. So that's what rings up in your mind then when you're confronted with some sort of decision, will this glorify God or not glorify God? Will I be walking in wisdom or not walking in wisdom? Will I be walking in light or not walking in light? Look to God's word. That is the resource indeed for it. You have to be careful, and I'll just finish out with just a couple points about this. You do have to be careful, though, in looking at God's word that you don't have some sort of shallow misrepresentation of biblical truth. That's been a problem from the very beginning. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul would tell his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, you're turning to 2 Peter 3. I just wanted to give you this verse, save some time. He tells them, you've heard this verse before, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You might have memorized in the King James, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is, let's make sure 
we get it right. We talked earlier, again, in Gordon's class, I'm going to keep picking on you, but I just remembered it. We talked about usage of words, for example, which people can misrepresent. How, how do you understand the meaning of a word? You look at it in its, in its context. The idea is you're lining it up, this rightly dividing the word of truth, that is, let's see how it lines up. We know that we're not infallible interpreters of the word. That's why the church at Berea was commended for what? Searching the scriptures to see if these things be so. I don't want you to take everything I say carte blanche, right? Uh, hopefully I can encourage you to look at the word, to examine it for yourself. Oh, I would expect a certain degree of respect since, oh, well, he spent some time studying this. Maybe he's got some of this right um, if I'm in error, correct me. But look at it yourself to rightly divide the word of truth so that indeed you would understand it and not be ashamed. Now, if you got to Second Peter, didn't have a lot of time for this, but this is just an example, and it burdens me. We talk about the word of truth, that that's what you're going to be sanctified by. But here's an example Peter, in chapter 3 of his second epistle, talks about our salvation, as he says, our beloved Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. Some of these things in them are hard to understand. You have to know that going in. You just don't take a surface look. Yeah, some things might be really self-evident, but there are other things that are hard to understand. You'll have to take more time to think them, to c compare, to see it in context. Because if you don't do that, if you don't take the time to diligently search a scripture, if you don't work hard to diligently make sure these things line up properly, they measure outright, then notice here as he goes on, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scripture. You know how you can tell some of that? They have an idea and an agenda, and then they look to see how they can shoehorn it into Scripture. When somebody does that, be very careful. Be very cautious. It's, it's almost self-evident. They have no idea. They say, well, okay, well, Jesus said don't eat. I mean, the Old Testament says don't eat shellfish, so therefore uh, homosexuality is okay because it's in the same code. That's such an ignorant an unstable way to deal with the text of Scripture. They have no idea about the Mosaic Code and what it was written for. No idea about the morality of God, the design at the very beginning. All these things that would naturally fit together. It is the ignorant and unstable, as mentioned here, they twist the Scripture and ultimately to their own destruction. I talked to a couple recently that were listening to ignorant and unstable people. They abandoned the clear truth to grab onto these ideas and ideologies that are not founded in Scripture. 
And I told him point blank, you're doing this to, the to your destruction. It'll destroy you, and it's going to destroy your family. This is a couple that seemed to really respect me and the direction that I was going. I was surprised by the fact that they had no interest in asking me this question. Why would you say that? Their response was, well, the people running this thing, they said they weren't a cult. <laughs> I gave them about five or six points with scripture, each one. It's the violation of this, 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 this. Their response, well, they said they weren't that. So the admonition there in verse 17 is, and he that thinks he stands to take heed lest he fall, but here's the warning here and Peter gives, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that what? There are ignorant and unstable people out there that are going to lead you to destruction, that twist the scriptures. Take care, it says, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And how will you accomplish that? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever. This idea of growing is synonymous to sanctification. That's the idea. You're sanctifying your mind. In what? In the truth about Christ. It is a growing knowledge. And, beloved, if you're not grounded in the truth and thereby growing in the truth, you may be taken away to, by your own, uh, by, taken away to destruction by these false teachers, which there are many. It always amazes me to, to read the epistles and how often they talked about this. That's when they were first writing <laughs> in the first century. Most of them will say about evil days coming and false teachers and so forth. And the call is then not to be taken away by philosophy and empty deceit, by human tradition, according to the elements of the world, but be grounded and grow in Christ. That phrase in verse 17 is one I want to leave with you again. And may it linger in your mind as you think through these things this week. Let's repeat this together, this phrase, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 17, let's do it together and we'll pray. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let us pray. Father. I do thank you for your word, which is indeed true in every aspect. I do pray that Christ's prayer would be manifested in our day in a great way. May many sons and daughters see the glory of God through Jesus Christ and by the Spirit to indeed be sanctified in this truth. May they see the glory of Christ in your word. May it rise up 
in the various circumstances that they might find themselves in so that they may be grounded in the truth and grow in it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment now to think on these things. Take a moment even now. Jerry normally finishes up with a blessing, but I wrote one down that's appropriate here, so we're going to give you a double blessing today. How about that? First Thessalonians 5:23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Amen. Were you going to do that one? Well, we... No, you don't, because you'll do it again, because we... Christ could repeat himself in this text of John. I think we could repeat ourselves. So we didn't communicate on that, did we? Good. Great minds think alike. Well, at least one anyway. So let's stand and sing to our Lord. A mighty fortress is our God. Jerry will lead us 656. Let's do the first and the last, and then you can give us a blessing. A mighty fortress is our God. And the work ever failing. to a second Thessalonians again let's our first Thessalonians let's go to second Thessalonians 
To this end, I bless you in the name of the Lord, that the Lord may make of you worthy. He was calling and <clears throat> fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. May the name of the Lord Jesus be glorified in you and you in him, according to his grace <clears throat> of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed.